Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Dave Deftula, Dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. And today we've got a really impressive panel of Air Force leaders collaborating on Next Generation Air Dominance, or NGET. Now, Secretary Kendall recently spoke at the Aerospace Warfare Symposium to offer some insights into this highly classified program. And the biggest takeaway was that the Air Force notionally plans to field about 200 NGAD aircraft with a minimum of between 1,000 and 2,000 collaborative combat aircraft, or CCAs, to operate with them, along with hundreds of F-35s. Clearly, autonomy network with advanced performance is what we need to meet the challenges of the future. Today's panelists are the ones who are making this happen. They've developed the requirements, overseen programs, and worked at the leading edge of research and development in this area. And they're the ones who will move into the positions to see these programs mature. First up, we have Major General Scott Joe, who currently has my old job of 20 years ago, the Director of Plans, Programs, and Requirements at Air Combat Command. He oversees more than 140 programs related to weapon system acquisition, modernization, sustainment, and testing. Next, we have Major General Evan Dertine, the commander of the Air Force Test Center located at Edwards Air Force Base. He manages operations related to the development, testing, and evaluation of our experimental aircraft. We also welcome my good friend, Major General Heather Pringle, commander of the Air Force Research Lab at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, as well as the technology executive officer for both the Air Force and Space Force. She's responsible for the full spectrum of science and technology efforts of both of these services. Finally, I'd like to introduce Major General Select, Dale White. He's currently the Program Executive Officer for Fighters and Advanced Aircraft at the Air Force Life Cycle Management Center, spearheading NGAD development. So thanks again, all of you, for joining us today. And what I'd like to do is start off by giving each of you an opportunity for a few brief remarks. So let's go ahead and uh, start with Major General Pringle, then we'll go to General Joe, General Dertine, and wrap it up with General White. So over to you, Heather. Well, thanks so much for having me here today. It's an honor to be joined by my colleagues in delivering such an important capability for our warfighters. As a lab commander, I couldn't be prouder to see a technology that was born in the lab developed by the vision and expertise of scientists and engineers who have been working hard on these types of technologies for so long and to see it come to fruition in such a way that is going to be of use to our warfighters. You know, we've partnered on this journey with uh, all, all the folks that you see here. It wouldn't have been possible without partnering with warfighters, the test center with uh, WEED, and of course, uh, uh, my good partner in the Vanguard Skyboard, Dale White. And I just want to say our work's not done. We're still a part of what this program is going to be, supporting everything that uh, this team is doing. But uh, look forward to the questions and agree. The marriage of autonomy with high-performance aircraft is really an exciting thing to see. Well, good morning, General Deptula. Thanks. It's really an honor to be here as well. I you know, I think my opening remarks are going to be centered around the fact that I'm extremely excited about seeing concepts that we have been developing 
from a doctrinal perspective, network warfare, which has been talking about for 30 years, has finally merged with the technologies that make these things a reality. Um, and so as we move into the next chapter of modernizing both our uh, Department of the Air Force on the Air Force side and the Space Force side, I'm extremely excited to see our new concepts start to become a reality as we're fielding these capabilities. As General White, General Pringle, and General Dertine and I partner on a routine basis, that partnership's resulting in fielding rapidly capabilities at a scope and scale that we haven't seen in a few decades. So I'm excited to be here and appreciate the invite. Very good. I tell you what, while we're working the common issue on uh, General Dertine, um, let's have General White uh, speak, and then we'll wrap it up with you, We It's all good about live television, right? There you go. <laughs> hey, so again, uh, thanks for the invite, General Deptula. It's phenomenal to be here this morning. It's an honor and privilege, and especially to be here with my esteemed colleagues who uh, I consider uh, partners in crime and making sure we get this done. You know, first and foremost, I think what's what is important is what exactly what General Duke talked about. So we're in a place now where we, we have the technology, we, we have the ability to do these things, and now I think with the operational imperatives, we clearly have the vision laid out of how we would do this. And I think that's one of the critical parts of this, is understanding exactly uh, how we're going to prosecute this, both from a, uh, from a requirements, from an acquisition, from an S&T, and from a test perspective, not necessarily in that order. And so having that operational imperative piece is critical. The next piece is, as I will tell you, is the partnership. Um, I've been doing this, as you can imagine, for a while, and I think what's critically important is there is a sense of urgency now that I think that we are all operating under. And that sense of urgency really underpins the partnership that we have. Uh, General Job, I, I think I joked at the panel we had uh, in Denver, you will rarely see me have this discussion without him with me because we have that, that type of relationship and we're sharing the different ideas and different concepts of both, uh, not only what, what we will deliver, but how we'll use what we deliver. And then with General Pringle, like she pointed out, I mean, it's perfectly clear. I love to say this, the partnership between this PEO and S&T has been nothing short of phenomenal. And just watching something come out of S&T, not get caught in the valley of death, but instead jump across that valley of death and really get us to a place where we can start leveraging the capability and the technologies that are out there. And then finally working with General Routine, he and I met just uh, just earlier last week talking about how do we go about getting this tested faster? Because if we do everything else right, we got to make sure we bring our test community close, have them sitting at the table, and have them have a voice of exactly what we're doing, how we're doing it, and how quickly we have to get it done. So it, it's, again, phenomenal to be here. Looking forward to the questions. Looking forward to the discussion. Well, very good. And that's a great segue back to um, um, our test commander. So, uh, General Dertine, are, are you up? Okay. We don't hear him yet. So what we're going to do is hopefully get him back up into the fight, and we'll start with some uh, questions. Uh, appreciate the initial uh, insights. Uh, so let's dig a little bit deeper into the topic. Um, I think everyone here, as well as our audience, is aware that uh, it's really no secret that our combat air forces uh, today consist of primarily fourth generation aircraft. Um, our air force in total is the smallest uh, and the oldest it's ever been in its history. Uh, this is the reality. And given that and the fact that our future challenges are going to be in contested battle space, um, what can you all say in the context of why it's such an imperative that we get our hands on NGAD? I'll pitch in first, I think. Um, you know, we could point to multiple examples throughout both history, but we can also jump straight into current affairs, right? 
if we take a look at what's going on in Ukraine right now, the challenges that Russia has faced with that particular engagement uh, have been largely oriented around the fact that they can't achieve air superiority. They've been into a stalemate fight now for over a year. Uh, and because they were unable to get even localized air superiority, they've found themselves into a position where there's literally thousands and tens of thousands of casualties. Um, I can't even estimate how much this is going to cost to uh, repair and recover the Ukrainian both infrastructure and the people and, and all of their institutions. So we could look at a current example and show that without the ability to get air superiority, without an air dominance kind of platform, this is the type of fight that you engage in. It's long entrenched, lots of casualties, and uh, it doesn't enable you to maneuver. Our joint force right now, as you know, and you've been talking about this for years, General Deptula, is in no way, shape, or form designed to operate without some sort of localized air superiority over top of it. We could look at the the highway in and out of Kuwait and Desert Storm and look at the carnage that was all along there because we had air superiority and the adversary didn't. So whoever has that ability to gain air superiority with an air dominance type of family of systems is going to reap the rewards, both in operational and real cost in terms of lives and money. Very good. Yeah, I'll follow into that. I think uh, General Joe and I have had this discussion numerous times, and I think over as a function of time, we've been focused on different parts of the threat, and now we've evolved to a different place. The state of affairs have changed, which by its very nature, the threat in and of itself has changed. And so I think looking at the space where we have technology today, understanding what our adversaries are doing, I, I think combining that with the idea of uh, taking that technology, pushing forward, pressing the envelope in terms of what we're capable, able to deliver. Uh, again, I think the biggest thing is, is knowing that the fight is going to be in a highly contested environment, mapping that out. I mean, at the end of the day, I, I think, you know, we, we, we talk about this in, in very platform-centric ways, but if you, if you take a step back and you look at the operational imperatives, it is typically that roadmap that says, hey, this is what we're going to have to do to be able to go be effective in that highly contested environment. And so we've dissected that in many ways. And you can see that we recognize the threat has changed. We recognize where technology is at and what the art of the possible is. Yes. We're ready to move out to get that capability in the field. Very good, Heather. Pass. Okay, it looks like we have uh, Channel 13 up. Uh, let me hand this over to you and offer you the opportunity to present your opening remarks or comment on the question, whichever you'd like to do. Uh, thanks, sir. Apologize for the technical difficulties. Uh, Not your fault. Uh, so, uh, you know, honored to be a part of this group. Uh, thanks for inviting us out to talk about this topic today. As Heather and the other speakers mentioned, uh, our, you know, relentless collaboration across the team here to uh, realize the vision, what we're going for. Uh, for my role at the Air Force Test Center, you know, our primary goal is to mature capabilities and do that developmental test. So across the life cycle of this program, whether it's NGAD or the CCAs, you know, in the wind tunnels, the aircraft development, uh, live fire weapons, the kill chain, uh, work and everything, and it really does to provide information back uh, to both requirements, the warfighter, who is the ultimate customer, and also to the program office, so uh, Dale can make decisions on how we go. So uh, it's great to be part of the team, and uh, I'll hop in on future questions. Oh, very good. Thanks very much for that. Now, um, yeah, let's move into the, into the next question, which is one that kind of focuses on the way we've done business in the past with air superiority. We've tended to focus on a single frontline air superiority um, fighter. Uh, can you talk a little bit, all of you, about your perspectives on NGAD being developed as a family of systems rather than just a singular aircraft? Although 
you know, aircraft going to be part of that, but how does this family of systems approach uh, work in terms of providing our forces an advantage in contested environments? Yeah, I'll, I'll jump straight in. There's two things that come to my mind, and we have a lot of analytics to support this and practical application of the art of war. Um, the two things really come down to fire and scheme and maneuver, and having a family of systems approach enables you to maneuver your force and apply firepower in much different ways than we've done in the past. And the second part is it enables you to manage risk in different ways. So if I take a combat collaborative aircraft and I can now pair that with the NGAD platform, the aircraft itself, it gives me a certain set of capabilities. But then I can do the same thing with F-35 and other platforms across the joint force that enable you to move at scale and speed in a way that we've never really seen before. So any crewed airplane can take control, command and control of a CCA and then direct them to engage uh, in the battle space in a way that they can manage risk that's different than having just a singular frontline type of platform the way we've done it in the past. Yeah, and I think following on to that piece, I mean, I think, I think you know, Secretary Kendall has said this numerous times, and I agree 100%. Um, when you think about something like this capability, providing affordable mass at the fraction of cost of an F-35, right, and the ability to do that, you can really change the nature of the fight. And so um, the ability to take an uncrewed capability and allowing it to enhance and complement what our crewed aircraft are doing, I think that's critically important. And I think that when you think about the sheer numbers of fleet sizes that we're dealing with today, it's very different than what we did in the past. You, you mentioned it early on. I mean, just the, the number of aircraft we had today is, is less than it's been in, in the history of our Air Force. And so as we think about that, how do we get to that affordable mass? And then, to, uh, like uh, General Job said, it's a scheme of maneuver, how, how you can use that mass to be able to, to be effective. I will tell you, though, what's, what's interesting, and uh, Jerome Pringle and I have had this conversation numerous times, is the technology is there. The enabling technology is there. We just have to reach out and grab it and then basically uh, work as this group, these four folks together, come together, and then basically be able to execute that technology and the capability we can build quickly. But uh, I agree, it's, it's that, that affordable mass is the key piece, and, and, and we've really got that focused. So we've really leveraged some of our earlier work in science and technology to get at some of these options and help de-risk what a uh, program would eventually be. Uh, you're familiar with Skyborg, which was one of our earliest Vanguard programs. Uh, it started out as only an S&T funded effort and uh, to Dale's credit, he partnered with me. He brought on some of his program managers side by side with our scientists and engineers in maturing the concepts that would help de-risk uh, what this employment of mass uh, CCA would eventually be. And so now we're at a point because of this co-management, co-development, uh, looking not only at the autonomy, uh, Skyborg also had an effort where we looked at airframes and experimentation, which of course brought in uh, all of Weed's team as well. And so we really are able to kickstart uh, where where Dale needs to go. And now um, now we can scale back the S&T funding and I'm supporting where Dale needs to go. So this is just a perfect example of how we need to do business in the future. Oh, that's very good. Joe uh, Dertine, comments? Yeah, I'll, I'll just build on that. Although NGAD or a CCA platform's not here yet, uh, right now in our partnership with uh, Heather uh, for the test center, we're already moving out to make sure we're ready to uh, test and deliver those systems 
Uh, so everything from uh, you know developing autonomy algorithms on our uh, X-62 Vista aircraft, which is an experimental test aircraft that test pilot school operates, um, doing some initial work to make sure our ranges are ready to test autonomy when you're doing, uh, you know, kind of non-definitive testing or non-deterministic testing. Uh, also getting the right manpower on board, bringing in the right experts. So uh, right now there's a lot of activity going on across the test center in partnership with the research lab uh, to make sure we're postured uh, to test the technologies of NGAD and CCA. Over. No, that's very good. Thank you. Um, now, Joe Pringle, you already gave us a little bit of insight on uh, what's been going on and, and how you've evolved the uh, Skyboard Vanguard program. Uh, but for you and General White, um, we know that the Air Force thinks about uh, collaborative combat aircraft as just the beginning of building a broader family of <clears throat> uninhabited systems. So to tether or not to tether is kind of the, <laughs> the interesting question. What does the warfighter want in terms of level of loyal wingman desired compared to a fully autonomous aircraft? I'll, I'll start, and I, I will let jo, uh, General Job answer for the warfighter himself. But, you know, it's, it's a great question, and frankly, it's an empirical one. So it's one we can test out. And what we want to do is to partner with warfighters, to partner with our acquirers and testers to look at modeling and sim and analysis. So how can we push the state of the art? Modeling in sim is a great way. It's risk-free, it's affordable, and it allows you to explore ex um, examples or scenarios where it's tethered, where it's not tethered, where you have a number of masks or not. And uh, what I really want to do is make you uncomfortable, uh, General Job, so that it pushes the boundaries of where we are today and we get further down the road faster like we need to. So I think uh, from a tethered perspective, though, I think there, there's a couple of definitions out there I think we need to clarify. There's one that you have completely autonomous vehicles and, and they're going to operate to their own devices. And then there's the other discussion of tether, which I think Joel Job and I had is, um, do these do these assets need to come up and show up in the same place at the same time, or do they leave and depart together? And so that's that's a discussion we've had about tethers. There's all kinds of discussions about tethered out there. I think first and foremost, and I'll let General Joe kind of talk through the, the scheme of maneuver with these assets, but I think first and foremost is recognizing we're going to have to do uh, some some real growth on the autonomy piece because the foundation to autonomy and and our S and T team and I we've had this conversation is is trust. You have to have trusted autonomy, right? Without trusted autonomy, it's one of those things that people are always going to wonder whether or not it's going to act appropriately. That's why I think that the, the lessons we learned and the foundation we built with Skyborg, the autonomous core system, is absolutely critical. And then where we go from here, and, and not just saying, well, okay, uh, AFRL is done, we're going to hand it over to the acquisition community. That is absolutely not the case. It is everybody in the room to include our operators, to include our testers, to include S&T, to make sure we build that autonomy, and then get it in the hands of the operators who can say, okay, I can trust this thing, right? And, and that's the path that we're on and moving very quickly. So, To tether or not to tether. <laughs> that's right. The answer is yes. Uh, in many cases, we will tether in terms of range and speed and payloads and capabilities. And in other areas, we will untether in terms of geographic location, right. mission generation, to complicate both an enemy targeting scheme and what they have to keep track of and battle track. And then we will be able to con 
congeal our forces to a time and place of our choosing. So there's lots of different definitions, as General White mentioned, on what tethering and non-tethering means. But the short answer is yes, we're going to have all of those capabilities. So we're going to have the ability to perform maneuvers in close concert with a fighter type of aircraft or NGAD platform itself. And then there are other cases where we will have swarms doing things on a platform to platform, CCA to CCA, or weapon to weapon collaboration level. Yeah, the one thing I think we're very much in sync on, uh, and, and I say this over and over again, and I know Joe, Joe, Joe does as well, is flexibility. And that flexibility can't be limited by the design of the material solution. The flexibility has to be introduced at the mission planning level, which means the material solution has to be very open in terms of what it's capable of doing. And that is one of the key focus areas because at the end of the day, when we employ these, we want to give the mission commander, we want to give her or him the capability to employ the maximum capability and the maximum flexibility on how we employ these. No, that's very good. And uh, it's, a, it's a good uh, discussion as a segue into the importance of connectivity uh, as a consideration. Um, because NGAD may rely heavily on data links and networks uh, in addition to its autonomous capability so that you can reach out and tell it what to do or not to do. So um, what other considerations do you have to ensure positive control um, of a collaborative combat aircraft in a spectrum contested environment? Because we know that the Chinese are not going to allow us to operate out there without messing up with our radio frequency communications. Yeah, I'll open a bit. Uh, General Joe, as you know, he's lead match comm for aerial networks and, and things of that nature. I think the, the, the foundational piece is understanding the requirement that we have to have secure comms and understanding what that capability provides to us. And then I think secondarily, we all have to also understand what that con-op looks like when we don't have that, how we operate in that space. And so there's some redundancy there we have to build in. Uh, we understand what that redundancy looks like, and we understand how we would employ it in the fight. Um, but, but I will tell you, the focus has to be on, um, as we go about this from a family and systems perspective, comms are a part of that family. Inside that highly contested environment, we, we have to evolve technology on multiple fronts, whether it be mission systems, whether it be the manufacturability of air vehicles, whether it be comm systems, all of those things have to move together. And so that's why the, the teamwork across this enterprise, the four people you have, are so critically important. Because all of those aspects have to be addressed, they have to be tested, and many of them will come out of S&T. Uh, in fact, we're having an uh, uh, attack air days here, here coming up with S&T supporting us on how we do some of these things. And so that's critically important. I'll turn it to General Joe to, to kind of flush that out a little more. Yeah, it's, a, it's a really great question, uh, first and foremost. So what we've done for our concept of operations and concept of employment have built in the ability to both have a human in or on the loop, and then also when that doesn't happen because of the contested electromagnetic spectrum that we anticipate, we still have built the, the capabilities from a mission planning perspective, from a rules of engagement, and from the autonomy perspective so that these aircraft can still be effective in the fight. And so, so we built that into our attributes for both the platform and the integration across the NGAD platform aircraft itself and the CCAs. So. Well, that redundancy piece was baked in from the S&T side, mm -hmm. I think. Yes, I was just going to get to that. Uh, yeah. The next generation of autonomy really has to be able to account for that and to get to a place where it's predictive and it can uh, think about what will it be doing uh, in times of disrupted, degraded, uh, intermittent <clears throat> comms, and is that 
transparent to uh, the warfighter? Are they comfortable with it? Do they trust it? And are the ethics baked in? Yeah, let me just hit on that last point that you made, because there are so many people out there um, that are concerned about autonomy in aircraft, much less aircraft that can actually employ weapons. And what I think a lot of folks fail to understand is you can, you know, the way they're going to operate in an autonomous fashion, you can bake into the manner in which they operate the rules of engagement to comply with all the laws of armed conflict. Uh, So I think that's a real important fact that we need to make sure people understand. Yeah, go ahead. We're working on that right now as we're flying some of the AFRO experiments and some of the the additional, what I was saw, additional CCAs, so whether it's the XQ58 or the different platforms that we have autonomy on, we're already having to think of that because we're flying this on over the United States, uh, over, over ranges, uh, where the public is close by. Uh, so developing that autonomy, the flexibility to switch back between tethered and untethered, and when you have an unexpected break of your tethering communications, what do you want the autonomy to do? Do you want it to automatically return to base? Do you want it to posture itself to reestablish the connection? Um, so as we're taking baby steps right now, kind of crawl, walk, run, we're working through all those kind of different things, but we're putting a framework in place to where, you know, safety is kind of your number one priority, and then you build on capability from there. Over. Yeah, and I think baking in the policy piece as well. We've talked about this. We understand what the policies are. We understand human on the loop is critically important, and we spend a lot of time, especially on the S&T side, I would say where we started was understanding chain of custody critical part of that process. If you don't start there, then it's going to be hard to try to get back to that when you try to employ this capability operationally. We know autonomy in the wild is not going to be perfect. Uh, There are going to be emergencies. There are going to be anomalies. And DOD has published responsible AI uh, um, guidance, and it includes things like traceability and not baking in bias uh, so that the systems aren't always going to the same thing and using the broadest data that you can. And those are really helpful. And uh, what we're trying to do is test out all those extreme cases so that the warfighters know what they're getting when they're handed this autonomy. Yeah, and I would ask, you know, you made a comment earlier about the ethics piece regarding how, how people may perceive this, right? And I would tell you, you know, Secretary Kendall continues to remind folks that this this does take some of the risk out of uh, the role of the, the crewed aircraft in terms of the pilot. And so when you think about things we already do with targeting pods and with weapons and things we already have, we're already on that path. And this uh, takes America's sons and daughters out of harm's way because we're able to push these things further forward and not take those risks that we have to take today. And so I think it's going to be a critical part of the future that I think Gerald Job and I have been working through on the, the kill chain work that we've been doing with OI4. Well, very good. Now, when when you ask Secretary Kendall what his priorities are, uh, he gives you three answers, China, (laughs) China, China. China. Uh, So with respect to how CCAs will operate in the Pacific, um, we know that current fighters don't have the best legs for the Indo-Pacific, but I also want to caveat that by saying we've operated fighters over long distances in mass for a long period of time. So it's not like they can operate, but given our lack of aerial refueling capacity right now, there is a challenge. So 
How do you all plan on addressing this reality in NGAD design? Does range or has range come into the equation perhaps more than it has in the past? Absolutely. So range and fuel and payloads are all part of the trade space when you're looking at attributes of a particular vehicle um, and capability and how you integrate those. And so I alluded to our ConOps development that we have. So all of those are part and parcel of that, supported by operational analytics that we've already done on the campaign and on the engagement level, the mini-v mini level, and even the 1v mini level. And so all of those we are baking into how we're doing this capability development. So I don't know, General White, if you have anything else. No, I think I would refer back kind of the air superiority study and some of the AOAs and some of the work that's been done. The analytics were absolutely there when we when we designed what what the, the specific requirements would be for this capability to make sure it could close the kill chain. It's a lot of effort, a lot of energy, a lot of names that most people would would recognize who, who had their fingerprints on, on building that uh, that framework in which we, we built those requirements and, and which informed how we developed the capability. And you know, General Deptula, you said it, you hit it right on the on the top. We've operated fighter aircraft for nine, 12, 14 hours in a single sortie multiple times. I've, I've done it in Afghanistan, Iraq, you've done it as well. It's not new. Air refueling is a critical capability, but runway length is also one of those that we have yeah. taken a really close look at. So if you remember in the Cold War, we were had the ability to land at multiple uh, highway strips in the European theater. Um, we did it all across the Pacific when we were island hopping in World War II. Uh, this is no different. So part of part of this discussion is some basic things like takeoff and landing. It makes a difference. And so we're, we're looking at all that trade space as we're developing these. That is a great segue to my next question. And that's it. We've heard a lot of different concepts about collaborative combat aircraft in the Pacific. And one of those is one that you alluded to, and that's becoming being runway independent. Uh, so how are you thinking about the CCAs that are going to operate with NGAD specifically? You start from the independence perspective. That's something we spend a lot of time on. I'll, I'll let Gerald Joe yeah. start, and then I'll, I'll pile on. Um, so runway independence, there's, there's varying scales of that, right? And we were looking at lots of different technology concepts. Uh, fundamentally, though, we're going to we're going to do what we know works today, and we're going to try to give ourselves maximum flexibility in terms of where we can base things out of and mission generate to complicate um, the enemy's tracking of our scheme and maneuver. And so, um, that tethered untethered comes back to that discussion, right? We are building this capability such that where you operate mission generation out of, and where you marshal your forces, and where you push to penetrate the highly contested environment really don't make too much difference other than it's a math problem and a mission planning problem and something that our captains and majors are experts at doing right now and had, they already have the skills to do that. Yeah, and I, would add, I don't think, you know, it's way too early to start closing the aperture of what we think the, the design solution is. And so we've looked at varying degrees of this. And I think one of the most important things is, is as we start to dissect the problem, which we've spent an enormous amount of time doing, is how, uh, how we inform the design piece of that. Right? What is that telling us? And then the ability to iterate. Uh, one of the things we're focusing a lot of time right now on is speed to ramp versus iteration. And so we want to make sure we have enough time between those two bookends. Hey, we get something out there quickly to meet the need, uh, to, to actually give uh, our discussion earlier this morning, right? Put it in the hands of the captains. As uh, General Kelly said, let them lead us through it and then iterate that, that design and that capability as a function of time. While at the same time, it's informed by how all the work we're doing to, to dissect that problem set and making sure those two come together for 
solution. The only thing I'll add is yeah. just that, oh, sorry, Weed. Um, I'll just no, add that we're working with industry uh, to ensure that technology is ready to meet whatever those requirements are, uh, whether it's yeah. you know rocket-assisted type of a takeoff or something else to build the propulsion systems that are really needed. Go ahead, Weed. And no, I would just say, first of all, I think with the technology and uh, what's going on right now, tons of room for innovation here. Uh, so as we work with Bragg, uh, as they develop the CONOPS, I just, I'm not even sure we figured that out yet. There's lots of room for innovation. Uh, while talking about it as a takeoff platform, whether you rocket launch it or put it on a runway, I'm actually more concerned about the landing problem. Because once you land it, you have to refuel it, you have to reload weapons or re-update the sensor. And that's really what's going to drive your CONOPS. Uh, what kind of crew do you need there? How quickly can you turn it? You know, if, if you recover it via parachute, that's probably a lot longer than if it lands a landing here uh, to come back. So to me, it's all about the combat turn. And we need to figure out the combat option, the right takeoff and landing environment that allows us to rapidly turn these uh, back into the fight. Um, so I, I think, like I said, uh, lots of innovation options. And we're already starting to see some of those pros and cons as we're doing some of the initial testing. Over. Yeah, no, that's uh, very good. Uh, and I think you all kind of hit on the topics of, you know, just what's going to happen in, in, in the requirements that are driving range, speed, and survivability. Um, now, we all have a, a sense of urgency when it comes to fielding uh, NGAD. Uh, and developing it as a family of systems is just one piece of fielding it. We also have to test it. Um, so this one's uh, for you, uh, Weed. Um, are there opportunities to compress and accelerate uh, NGAD testing so we can get it into the hands of our warfighters uh, quicker? Yeah, I think uh, we're exploring those all right now. So I'd say a couple things have changed probably from the days uh, when you were associated with the test community. Uh, one, you know, kind of integrated end-to-end -end right now, so there's less of a, a border between developmental test and operational test and capotech. Uh, right now, our NGAD combined test force that's already being stood up it is completely integrated with DTOT, and we have one integrated test plan uh, to make sure that every single test point counts and we don't have to repeat anything. So I think that integrated test plan alone will help. Um, also, the digital engineering, as uh, Dale and his team have worked with the uh, industry to develop those digital models, uh, that gets us something to where we can populate. So every single mission we're flying, uh, we can use that data to uh, develop and you know, basically uh, validate the digital model. And that may allow us to take risks in some areas where the model's very mature and focus our times where we're, we have higher risk or where the model's not as mature. And then the final thing I'll add on is just something like the joint simulation environment. I think the sooner we can get something, the NGAD components, um, whether it's the platform itself or actually the sensors, into the simulation environment and rigging out as much as possible there, also developing tactics in the simulator um, that will help us accelerate combat delivery to the warfighter. Over. That's very good. Now, uh, another piece that kind of fits into that uh, and again, I open this up to, to everybody here, um, is that NGAD effectiveness, as we discussed, is going to depend on this whole family of systems thing. So has uh, there been any thought in terms of whether you roll out the family of systems all at once or piecemeal in terms of how the different elements mature? Yeah, I'll tell you from, from, from my perspective, this is uh, the discussion we've had inside um, on 
with, with General Job and I and, and across the enterprise is we don't want to wait to roll things out. I don't think we're going to wait for an NGAD to roll out of CCA. I mean, we're, we, we have F-35s out there. We have other capabilities out there. So we're, we're working through that right now. And so even the technologies on mission systems and other areas, we will continue to push push the envelope in those areas to make sure we can get those capabilities in the field. And on the flip side of that, I mean, we still have the need to address uh, the platforms we have now to fill the capability gaps. So we're continuing, you know, increasing lethality on F-22 until we can get to an NGAD. So all of these technologies, we don't want to hold them back and just roll everything out at one time. I think in the name of iteration, we will continue to push these out. And then once we do, we will iterate as a function of time. I think that's Joe, that on that? Yeah, no, I think you nailed it. We're we're not going to do this in a serial fashion yeah. where it's all going to come out in one big bundle like a Christmas present that you open, you know, on Christmas Day. This is going to roll out and integrate with our existing fleet and forces that we have, both on the Air Force and on the Navy side of things. By the way, we have a lot of joint partnership with the United States Navy right now as we're moving this capability forward. Very good. Um, okay, what I'd like to do now is each one of you uh, have extraordinary sets of experience. Uh, and, I, and I wanted to ask you a question about what your former roles have brought to the equation. So let me start with General White, as the former PEO for ISR and Special Operations Forces. You managed an enterprise that's known for moving fast and thinking outside the box. Um, what can you do from an acquisition PEO standpoint to do the same kinds of things for NGET? Yeah, so I learned a tremendous amount being the PEO for ISR and SOF, and so th those are, the folks that work inside that directorate are amazing. I mean, nothing short of amazing. And the, the way we were able to do things as quickly as possible, moving at the speed of relevance. Uh, but I will tell you, I think foundationally where I learned the most about uh, trying to exercise quickly in acquisition was probably my time in the RCO as a B-21 SPO director. And so why I refer back to that, it, it's not that we didn't go fast in ISR and SOF. There was a lesson I learned there that I think is critically important and exceptionally relevant to what we're doing with both NGAT and CCA. And that's simply this. We can't do this without industry. We just can't. And so early on, uh, the partnership we had with industry on, on B-21 and some of the programs we had there, I think just set the example of we're kind of in this together. You know, I've said it often in many open forums is that we, we, we forget that we don't go to war as militaries. We go to war as a nation. And industry is part of that nation. And if, you know, if, if something were to happen and things didn't turn out the way we wanted it, we, we lose as a nation, right? And so I think it's critically important to build that partnership early on. And so in the, specifically in the case of CCA, I'll give you an example, is we didn't presuppose, even with all of the relationships that General Pringle and I created as the Vanguard, industry was on board every step of the way. Um, we didn't presuppose we had the solutions nailed. In fact, we went out and said, hey, here's, here's how we view the problem set. What do you think, right? And so I think building on that idea that to get to the best of our innovation capacity as a nation, uh, we're going to have to tap into industry. We're going to have to par partner with them every step of the way. Uh, when we take a risk, as uh, General Dertine talked about, we take a risk as an enterprise to include industry. And I think going through that, it's gonna really going to turn return dividends in terms of how quickly we can get to speed to ramp. Very good. Uh, General Joe, you obviously spent a lot of time out at Nellis at uh, Weapons School. What do your experiences out there bring to the equation in terms of the... Uh, 
the important points that you see necessary to pursue with NGET? So as you know, since you're a, a graduate of that great institution, um, it's really a school about leadership and critical thinking with the mantra of humble, approachable, and credible. And I'll, I'll anchor on the last piece, the credibility part. I think my experiences uh, at the weapons school keep me thirsty for knowledge about potential threat environments. So I'm always studying. I'm always in the vault. I'm always in the books. I'm always trying to get smart from our intel partners, uh, always trying to learn from our industry partners, partnering with this great group of leadership. That enables you to know what right looks like, I think. You know, there are oftentimes people will say, hey, you're a general officer, you're a generalist, which is true. You've got to think at the strategy level, but you've got to know what right looks like at the tactical level. Because if it's not real, once we deliver it to our captains and majors and sergeants out there in the field, if it doesn't work, then it's our fault for not knowing what right looks like. So that's very helpful. And then the last piece I'll, I'll emphasize is I just got to spend two weeks with the Air Superior Functional Working Group in January of this year at Weapons and Tactics Conference. So that relationship in the years I spent there gives me a tremendous amount of reach back to the Warfare Center and General Cunningham. And we leverage that team of experts, which are like no one else on the planet, to actually critique our homework take a look at our requirements and attributes and see if we got this right. And so we had them go out and take a look at our concepts and run them through a war fight in their mind and partner with their SMEs and tell us if we had it right or wrong. And there's a tremendous amount of capability in that. So I think that, that's it. Awesome. Uh, outstanding. Okay, General Dertin is the Air Force's top test pilot. You've pretty much flown every airframe in the force. So what special considerations do we have to consider when moving uh, to sixth-generation aircraft from a testing perspective. Yeah, I think uh, I think as you kind of look going forward, both on the NGAD side and the CCA side, we're, we're already kind of invested in that risk reduction. I would say CCA is becoming kind of the closer alligator to the boat. Uh, so there's some stuff that's fairly straightforward that uh, will kind of handle the air vehicle, the integration of sensors, whether it's a, a sensor, a weapon, or a, a jammer. That stuff's fairly straightforward. I think what's different is when you look at autonomy, you know, the autonomy engine, the integration with crewed aircraft, whether that's fighters or uh, through, the, through the kill chain, through satellites and other banks, and then also the operations of CCA. So it's, it's a totally different problem set. Um, so we're getting after that by getting the right people on board, uh, the right experts, and I can tell you our, our young captains and majors are fully focused on this. In fact, uh, Project Venom right now is, is bringing F-16s that we'll put autonomy on to help us get after the autonomy that we need and to get that into kind of daily operations where we go. So um, I see see lots of challenges as far as building this NGAP family assistance, but I also see lots of opportunities uh, to go deliver something new and innovative uh, that will help out the warfighter. Well, thanks very much for that. Uh, turning to General Pringle. Um, you've got a lot of experience in uh, human factors engineering. What does that experience bring to the equation when you think about NGET? Well, uh, it's a little old experience uh, from when I studied uh, human factors engineering, and I would say the problem set is so much bigger and broader, not just a single operator and a single machine, but we're opening the aperture to a whole system and frankly, a system of systems and the and how, how can you look at additionally the mission planning, the sustainability, the maintainability, the refueling. I love what we'd said about, you know, gas and go again. So it's opening the aperture well beyond just the one-to-one -one relationship that we've had for so many years to something that's uh, one-to-many. 
And then the other thing that I would really highlight that my training has um, instilled in me, we tend to focus on best case scenarios and what, how do we respond, how do we want it to respond in the majority of uh, actions and missions, but it's never going to always go right and you have to plan for those contingencies, emergencies, and those edge cases so that you're not surprised or you lose trust in the system. But I will say that uh, we're ready to respond to anything that we learn and then help ensure that through continuous uh, integration and continuous development, we keep feeding out a steady pipeline of new technology for the warfighter. Awesome. Well, thank you all for that uh, incredible uh, insight. I do want to uh, shift now to questions from the audience uh, who've been patiently standing by. Uh, you all know the drill out there. I'll call on you, unmute your mic, state who you are, and then your question. We've got a bunch of them out here. Uh, but let's go to uh, raised hands. Let's go to uh, uh, Steve Trimble uh, for the first question. Uh, yeah, hi. Uh, thanks for, for doing this. Um, I, I just wanted to follow up on General 13's comment about Project Venom. I saw that in the in the budget books and, and some of the statements. Uh, could you drill down a little bit more on how you're adapting the S-16 to perform the, these autonomous demonstrations? And then secondly, I mean, we've, we've seen this a bit before. There was Half Raider 2 back in 2017. Uh, there was obviously Skyboard with the XQ-58 and XQ-20 and then um, the X-62 itself. And so I guess how, is there a continuum? Is this built, you know, and how is it building on, on those previous uh, projects? Yeah, well, Warren, Steve, uh, great question. So uh, the goal of Venom is to, to accelerate in a couple areas. Uh, one, we're not trying to reinvent something. So we're taking all the work that we've done uh, before with Heather with Skyboard, all the work from DARPA and the other efforts in getting that on X-62 and trying to get that core autonomy engine that we will now put it in F-16. And, and what the F-16 allows us to focus on is since it's a crewed fighter, uh, we can work on getting you know, the, the uh, aircraft to and from the airspace to develop the autonomy there. And also in the airspace, work on the, the manned teaming uh, and you know, the uh, uncrewed operations. So I think it's a natural evolution from everything you've seen before. And it'll also be a feedback loop. So things we learn there, uh, we can either incorporate back into the Vista autonomy engine or basically do uh, you know kind of the DevSec ops there at Eglin to help develop that autonomy. But all of it is focused on ultimately delivering a, a CCA capability. And as you get into different platforms with different capabilities, uh, the goal is to have one core autonomy engine. So we're not we're not investing in different uh, different uh, you know, acquisition programs for the autonomy portion. Uh, but all that data or Heather follow up on you know, how it kind of all comes together to support CCA and the other efforts forward. There's a lot of data to collect uh, through Venom, and I think uh, that is an important key is how do you uh, collect data while it's in flight and then leverage that to develop the next generation of autonomy based on what uh, the pilots and the machines are doing together. And so, again, uh, to me, it's all about the data and developing that autonomy core system. Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll double down on what General Dertin said. You know, we, we are taking the work that we've done up to this day, we're bringing it forward. And you, you, it goes back foundationally to what I talked about earlier, it's that trusted autonomy, right? 
This is where it starts. Now we're going to integrate it into the F-16. We're going to start uh, practicing with our algorithms that we come out of S&T, come out of DARPA from different places. So, so we're leveraging all of those things that the previous work that's been done, understanding that foundationally we'll have that autonomous engine and then we'll have to continue algorithm development. And, and I'll double down on one other thing. It, it is kind of a culminating point, right? Because the idea is that uh, our autonomy will be platform agnostic. That is really critically important because we're not going to recreate the wheel every time we go to a different platform or if we evolve into a different platform. The autonomy will be something that will be uh, um, that will continuously iterated as a function of time, both in S&T with other partners as well, to make sure we to evolve. But that 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 uh, Vista and Venom both are critically important to that algorithm development and taking us to the next level. And, and, and real quick, if I could, Dan, you reminded me one thing, Steve. If I could follow up. Uh, the Vista aircraft uh, is great for the control and development, and we kind of have the safety wrapper to develop autonomy. Uh, what we don't have on that aircraft is a lot of sensors. Right. So by getting it on the Venom aircraft, you now have an ACER radar, you have electronic uh, warning, you have all those things that where now you can expand your autonomy algorithm to react to the inputs that it's getting to make decisions for you. So it's kind of the next evolution into uh, scaling up what autonomy can do, and, and that's what those Vista Air, sorry, the uh, Venom aircraft will help us do. Uh, that's great, thank you. Okay, um, let's go to uh, Patrick Tucker. Pat? Hi, uh, yeah, th thanks for doing this. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what uh, the, some of the testing milestones are for uh, both of these this year. Are you looking to have something in the air that can perform specific maneuvers or, or fill out like a, a specific kind of, um, you know, testing mission uh, portfolio or, or over the course of this year, when you actually put this in the air and test it, how will you uh, evaluate whether it's uh, living up to your expectations? Yeah, I don't know if that question was for Dale or for me. So Dale, I'll let you start on what you're looking for this year and maybe I can answer too. Yeah, I think the biggest thing is just making sure, again, uh, I think Steve made the comment that you see the, the Venom line and the budget is taking that money, getting those F-16s ready to go, and then getting them in, in the air. Uh, so that's just the Venom piece. Uh, with Gerald Pringle, we've never really stopped flying on the yeah. Skyborg piece. We're still flying XQ-58s out of Eglin. Uh, we're, we're practicing. Interesting, I, I made this comment when uh, I was out at the AFA event in Denver. Uh, we're practicing exercising the range on making sure the range is ready to do these things and getting it exercised of what is it like to, to test autonomous vehicles. And so we're going to continue down that path. Uh, Timeline-wise, uh, really this year is focused on um, getting those Venom aircraft where we need them to be. It's going to take a little bit of time while continuing to expand the envelope with respect to what we're doing with some of the, the range testing down at Eglin and even some of the work we're doing with Vista out at uh, Eglin, or out at uh, Edwards, excuse me. John Dertine, I'll turn it back to you. Yeah, I would, uh, you, know, you know, I probably can't go into a specific milestone as, as far as you know, the classification stuff. I, I would say it's a combination of a lot of milestones. So uh, a lot of different things going on. First of all, taking all the previous work from DARPA and, and the other um, AAFRL autonomy initiatives and actually getting those on an aircraft and seeing how they actually work on an aircraft and if they do it and tweaking that. Uh, the second thing I think is huge this year is just the partnership with industry. Uh, so we have multiple different industry partners that are able to load their software on the Vista aircraft to develop, get the feedback, and get the data to what Heather was talking about so they can learn. Uh, we had an event in January where we were able to iterate multiple times. So uh, the industry partners were able to get results, go tweak them, and then load them on the aircraft that week and actually fly again. So 
to the screening that we could uh, rapidly get a rate. And then second of all, I just think our range safety, as we talked about before, you know, flying autonomous aircraft that are gonna, you're not just automating, uh, you know, sets, tasks that you actually wanted to think and react and go and it's not deterministic. Uh, we need to make sure our range safety um, is comfortable with that and we can make sure we keep the public safe. So I would say probably a hundred uh, mini milestones this year as we continue to mature the autonomy effort. Over. Thank you. Okay, let's take one from uh, the chat room. Mr. Uh, John Turpak from uh, Air and Space Force Magazine. This one's for General White. The Air Force has decided not to pursue the AETP engine for the F-35. Secretary Kendall has said the Air Force will press on with the NGAP engine for the NGAT. But NGAP is expected to be ready about the time NGAD is supposed to enter service. Is this a high-risk concurrency approach, or will NGAD propulsion be iterative? Wow, that's a hard question. I, I don't know how much of that I can really answer due to classification. I, I will just, I'll, I'll comment like this. I think the future of air dominance and air superiority is going to be foundationally on our ability to, to get propulsion where it needs to be. I won't comment on what propulsion we'll have with what platform. I will just tell you we'll have to continue to iterate propulsion as a function of time. Uh, it is an area where we currently have a, a significant advantage, and so we need to continue that advantage. In, in terms of where NGAP will fall and where NGAP will fall and how that all comes together, that's, that's probably for a discussion in a different time and space. I think the only thing that I'll pile on on that is just because we're not going to continue to pursue AETP for F-35, does it mean we forgot or unlearned everything we That's got right. out of that effort? It will feed into future efforts and propulsion, which we're going to need. Well, I think that a lot of the work that AETP was able to provide is something that we'll be able to move forward for things like NGAP and things of that nature. There's a lot of, um, even before when it was in S&T, there was a lot we learned, and so we'll continue that. But in terms of specificity, yeah. I'll defer on that one. <laughs> okay, let's go back to the raised hands and uh, turn it over to John Harper. Thank you. Sorry about that. Um, when do you think that the uh, CCA platforms and the NGAD man platform will be ready to be fielded respectively? You mentioned that you're not planning to, you know, roll them all out at the same time. So I was wondering if you have kind of a rough time frame for what you're aiming for in that regard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't, due to classification reasons, I don't think I'll touch that one, General Joby. <laughs> I'm not even going to try to tap dance around that one. Yeah, that's, that one's just a little complex. Oh, um, and just to clarify, do you, you think the CCAs will be ready before the MANS NGAD platform? Can you just kind of address which one you think will come first? Well, I mean, I think that you could do the math in, in terms of where we're at with capability development. But one thing I would add, I mean, this is a, a 24 effort, right? And so we, we have some work we have to do. I'll just say that speed to ramp is important, but I won't get into specifics with, with respect to timeline. Okay. Uh, let's go to Kevin Stubbs. I'm interested, uh, gentlemen, uh, in the size of the force that you expect to need in a 2030-2040 time frame to compete against our adversaries. How large a force and how are you going to take care of manufacturability and sustainment over an attrition uh, hegemonic force cycle? Thank you. 
So I'll, I'll start and then I'll let you get to the manufacturability and sustainment piece. Um, I, I think everybody's tracking that Secretary Kendall's given us a planning factor of 1,000 CCAs to maybe a, a couple thousand. Um, we'll continue to iterate through what that looks like more structure-wise because there's a lot of decisions to be made between now and getting to those kinds of manufacturing numbers and getting them fielded, both from a, a capability development perspective, but also from an organized training equipped. Dot mill PFP, we got to train airmen, we've got to train squadron commanders, we've got to train engineers and scientists, we've got to train intel, we've got quite a bit of work. It'll go faster than a lot of people think because it's not a it's not like we're doing a something completely different than we've always done. It's just it's just a different way of doing the similar things. So I think those are our planning factors. Uh, we'll see where the force really ends up based on uh, funding and and timelines for what industry can provide. But um, I, I think those are good planning factors. That's roughly the number that we came up with was you know somewhere around that ballpark range of a planning factor. Um, and that's just the Department of the Air Force side of things. I think the Department of the Navy and the Marine Corps. Uh, as a subset of the Navy, they'll have to do their own analytics and, and bring that to the fight on what they're going to provide for affordable mass. On the attributability side, I go back to what General White said earlier. Um, we're building attribution or attributability at the mission planning level. That is for either the combined forces air component commander to make a decision on risk or for the flight leader package commander for her to make that risk decision or for the air battle manager for him to make that decision, that's where that decision gets made, not at the design level, not about raising gear or being able to get to the fight. It's about you know who can make that decision in a war fight. Um, yeah, I'll just, you know, I think I've, I've said this time and time again, that the, the challenge with innovation capacity in a nation is your ability to produce what, what you innovate. And so we have spent an enormous amount of time on that. So a couple things we're looking at is number one, industrial capacity, right? Uh, how do we be able to, to uh, build and, and continue to evolve an industrial capacity that allows us to reconstitute at a rate at the rate of the fight. And so that's one of the things we're really focused on. And in doing that, there's a couple things you got to look at. You got to look at manufacturability in terms of where that technology is. Uh, when you start looking at digital engineering, uh, different types of determinant assembly and things of that nature, we really got to focus on advanced uh, capabilities in that area, which we have. And I will tell you, that is kind of the value of the digital engineering piece. It, it can easily um, evolve into the manufacturing piece, and, and we're seeing that. And so we'll have to continue to focus on that. But I will tell you, foundationally, from a CCA capability perspective, industrial capacity is one of the areas we will maintain in terms of looking at that and, and making sure we can produce just the numbers and, if required, reconstitute. And Again, from an S&T uh, standpoint, we're working hand-in-hand -hand with industry to look at what's uh, next state-of-the-art in yeah. manufacturability. So could we get to a place where 3D printing or yeah. new kinds of materials could be leveraged that are easier and more producible at scale? And uh, can we get them certified for airworthiness? So uh, we have lots of partnerships out there to see what we can do to further state-of-the-art yeah. support where the program office and the warfighter want to go. And one of the things that I'll just, I'll pile onto that one because one of the things we've had discussions with the manufacturing experts in AFRL is the value of commonality. <laughs> commonality across the simpler things in these platforms will allow you to push forward and be able to produce faster. And so that's one of the areas we're going to continue to focus on as well. Okay, well, ladies and gentlemen, we've come to the end. However, we have one more hand and I want to squeeze it in. So Stephen, Lucy, please quickly, what's your question? Hi, uh, yeah, real quick, we 
we often hear about you know the, the discussion about family systems. Obviously, the uh, um, CCA is a major portion of that. Can you talk to us a little bit about what other elements that make up the so-called family systems you feel are most important? Like it, it, it's surely not just a, um, a a family of two, you know, of course. Uh, what's what's the most important other part of the family system besides CCA? So the there's a sensor part of this, which is important on the modular design kind of consideration so that we can now customize a CCA, if you will, on a mission requirements level. So if on one day I need this sensor capability, on the next day I don't. Weapons are a huge part of the discussion. Um, and then really, I talked about it earlier, is that cross-platform integration. The ability to do command and control with a combat collaborative aircraft across a host of our uh, weapon systems that we have both fielded and are fielding is all important aspects of those. So I think sensors, weaponry, and integration is what I would comment on quickly. Awesome. And the ubiquitous and seamless ability to connect in a reliable, secure fashion. Sir. Okay. Well, like I said, we've come to the end of our time. I think all of you would agree that the United States Air Force and the United States writ large is in wonderful hands with these magnificent leaders. Um, orchestrating these concepts and guiding us through the development, testing, and acquisition of uh, collaborative combat aircraft uh, as well as NGAD. So thank you all again for being here today. And from all of us here at Mitchell Institute, have a great aerospace power kind of day.